0: Hi everyone! Welcome back to In the Margins podcast. Uh, this is Ramon Real. Pronouns are they, them, theirs. And here is uh, my co-host,
1: Francis. Pronouns are also they, them, theirs. And today we have our guest, Angelina molts
2: Hi, I'm Angelina, and my pronouns are she, her, hers, and also they, them, theirs.
1: Angelina,
0: we're so excited to have you here. Like I'm like legit. I'm so fucking excited to have you here. Um, Do you mind just kind of telling us a little bit of what you do and um, a little bit about yourself, if that's cool?
2: Yeah, and I'm also very, very excited, and I feel very, very honored to be on tonight. Uh, So a little bit about me. I am currently a professor at San Francisco State University, as well as City College of San Francisco and College of San Mateo, where I teach communication studies with an emphasis in performance studies. So some of those classes are like intro to public speaking all the way to like performance and feminism and how we communicate about those topics. And...
0: Um, Okay, yeah. (laughs) Yes. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you.
1: I've always wanted to be one of
2: your students, honestly. I mean, come on over, please. (laughs) I would love to have you. Can we audit your classes? I mean, why not? Because like, here's the thing. Now that we're all online, quarantine is kind of like created a space where like I could have you in my class and I could either have you as students or I could have you as like TAs or like mentees however I wanted to phrase it um you know that could be a thing
0: I mean I would love to learn from you and then uh dive into some like really cool topics that you teach um yeah I'm sorry uh, totally interrupted you you Uh,
2: (laughs) yeah um how did I get where?
1: So how did you get to SSA? What's been oh. your journey to being a professor and then delving into those topics of performance art, but also very, you know, um,
0: activism and feminist yeah. work as well.
2: Yeah. So it's kind of messy, but clean at the same time, I guess. Um, so like as a first generation college student, I was very confused, like how to navigate college and I found myself in my final semester at CSU Stanislaus and I was working at a radio station and I was like, well, maybe this is the path that I'm going to take is like go into radio and do performance as a part of that because I also was getting my minor in theater. Um, And then I had a professor who I really admired and looked up to and they were like, Hey, you know, maybe you should apply to a, a master's program. Have you ever thought about that? And as a first generation college student, I was thinking like, um excuse you like who do you think I am like I can't do that are you wild like this is my parents you know (laughs) couldn't help me with like the basic things because they didn't have any experience in it which as you all know Mm -hmm. like uh, on similar journeys it's like Mm -hmm. how am I Mm -hmm. supposed to apply for like grants and loans if like my support system also doesn't know how to do that um Mm -hmm. so basically like that night I was like, let me look into this program. And I did, and I applied and I got in and I was like, I guess I'm moving to San Francisco. Um, (laughs) It was really weird. And so it felt like it happened overnight. I like quit my job. I was working at a sports shop and (laughs) like packed up my bags and was like, I guess I'm moving to San Francisco. And um, it was just kind of weird how one of my friends that I had met the year before was also at San Francisco State in the master's program. And they had a room opening up. So everything kind of like fell into place really nicely. I feel like the universe G- was wow. like pushing me there for sure.
0: Like, girl, go, yeah. go. Like, yeah.
2: get out of here. What are you doing? Um, mm-hmm. and that's how I found myself there in the master's program, which is like also where I started teaching and getting into my fat politics. Um, and then I moved back home after my master's program to start teaching at a college. I'm college actually. And then I found myself just being really, really sad and really stuck and hurting to, to want to be back in the city. And it was a really scary decision, but I did it. And I came back and I feel very happy with my decision. I think it was worth it, but that's how I got back to, to San Francisco.
0: Nice. Um, Angelina, you mentioned, uh, you just mentioned something, uh, fat politics. Mm -hmm. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on that?
2: Of course. Yeah. So um, because your listeners might not know this, I'm fat and I have existed in a fat body all of my life and I kind of like dabbled or like fell into body positive movements when I started joining or when I joined Instagram in like 2011 or 2012. And it was more like, oh, like I'm seeing bodies who look like mine. And this is so wild that like, I'm finally seeing bodies who look like mine, who don't exactly hate themselves. Like what's going on. And when I went to my program at San Francisco State, I read one article about medical mistreatment and weight bias. And I was also experiencing a really intense moment with a lot of doctors being really fat phobic. And that's how I kind of stumbled into fat politics. So fat liberation and fat acceptance is all about looking at our society, especially the U.S. because we are a very thin, um, idealized society. So it's looking at how we use capital O, which is like obesity rhetoric to label fat bodies as health hazards, as unequal, as not enough. And we have like a war on fatness as something that's undesirable and something that shows like a failure of a body, um, which is why it's also kind of intersected with disability politics a lot and also queer theory and all that good stuff. So fat politics is just Mm -hmm. about like radicalizing the way we think about bodies and the way we specifically think about fat bodies.
1: What challenges do you face personally in kind of deconstructing that for yourself, right? Because... I'm sure that through the grad program and just learning like, oh, these things I've experienced, but what was it like personally at a personal level?
0: Uh,
2: I mean, the personal level is really, I think, intense because when I started to go on the journey towards fat acceptance and fat liberation, I also was myself like checking in on my own internalized fat phobia and also like working to push back against diet culture. And so it kind of reframed my whole relationship to my family and to friends who were very fat phobic, but like, I didn't have a word to place on it. I just knew that it felt shitty. Um, and I really think that the challenge that I faced was believing that my work was good enough believing that my work deserved a space in communication studies field and in the field of performance studies, because I wasn't seeing a lot of it at the time, although it's definitely gotten bigger now. And also there was always people doing that work. I just might've not felt like it was happening because I wasn't seeing the visible people who were doing it because most people who do that liberation work are black, femme, queer people. And so of course, you know, they're really on the margins and their work doesn't get publicized the way that white academics do. So mm-hmm. I wasn't often seeing work. And so I thought I'm alone in this. And everyone who reads my work just thinks that I'm a, a fat crybaby, which I am a fat crybaby. baby. Uh, but like everyone is just going <laughs> to disbelieve all the things that I have to say. And so I think the challenge really the biggest challenge for me was believing that what i was doing was good and needed and necessary and i think i still struggle with that idea on my day-to-day basis because fat phobia is so huge
0: um angelina you've mentioned fat phobia a couple times uh do you mind uh elaborating on as well of what that term means
2: yeah I think that fat phobia has many different levels, but I think at it's like root is the deep, like deep centered fear of fatness, but the fear is rooted in hate. So it's like this hate mm-hmm. towards fat bodies, towards fatness, towards getting fat. It's why we have also like, medicalize the fat existence as a problem or as something as a disease, which is why scientists created the term obesity, is to to now take a body and place it as a disease rather than to have it be still a human being. So fat phobia at its core is just a here, a, a, a here, a fear and a hatred of fatness and fat
1: people. And then something else you mentioned was diet culture, right? So and then I'm sure like we all know what it is but what in terms of its relation to fat phobia and, and and fat people what does that term mean Yeah,
2: I mean diet culture. I think a lot of us know how it feels. It's like all the weight watchers commercials and all the like nutr and all those things, but it's also the idea that Herb,
0: yerba lights and Right. was it herba
2: <laughs> Exactly. All those like Herbalife, whatever they are, um, skinny tea all of these systems that are basically, body bye bye yeah exactly all these systems that are basically put in place to say the more control you have over your body the better it is and so diet culture is this idea that we have to maintain a certain body to be worthy to be accepted to receive proper care So in the US specifically, we have a very thin idealized society where we see celebrities who are all thin, who get the praise. Um, and that's like like reified by watching movies that have fat characters as like the fat funny friend. They're never the lead and the story is always about them being fat, you know? Like I have a challenge for my students every semester that's like, I want you, if you can bring me a film or a TV show by the end of the semester that doesn't mention any like fat phobic rhetoric, then you can get 15 extra credit points. And I have yet to have a student be able to do it. Um, so Ah. like that's how steeped it is in our culture. Mm -hmm. So that's diet culture. It's like the idea that like you have to have control over what you're eating, over what you're doing, because that means you're accepted and that means you're worthy. And that means like you deserve care.
0: And this is all or like, like you mentioned, like deeply rooted, and it's all over the media, right? Like every media that we consume, whether it's magazines or TV shows, movies, um, it's all there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you were mentioning like the usually it's like the the character type of um, the fat best friend, right? Yeah. Or it's sometimes, or most of the times, fatness is used as a uh, a tool for comedy, right? Um, to kind of make my, make fun of us and mm-hmm. like the, the our body types, right? Yeah. Um, but you also do a lot of performance art right yeah what is how does that look and how does that entail and how do you uh bring your activism work within your performance art as well
2: i think my performance art is you know it changes every time and i think like all of you as performers know that your mood and like every day is like a different performance that you kind of want to dabble in and so some mm-hmm. of my performance is a critique on society and a lot of my performance is really you follow like a emotional roller coaster ride with me and I do use humor at the beginning because I think that buys in my audience because they're like ah we Mm -hmm. can laugh with you right and then I like Mm -hmm. I emotionally punch them in the mouth with kind of like a guilt trip, essentially, like you've done this, (laughs) right? Like you've done this, you've done this to me. You're doing it to me right now, actually, as we sit here and I perform this for you. And so I want you to think about this. I want you to feel guilty. I want you to hold this space for me and I'm going to take up this space too. And I am going to rant and I am going to do these things. And a lot of my thesis performance was about structures both physical and social structures like a roller coaster that I got kicked off at at the Santa Cruz Beach Walk. wait what yeah yeah I like one of my like biggest pieces of my thesis is I went to the Santa Cruz Beach Walk um at a smaller size than I am now and I got on the roller coaster and it's got like you know two bars that have to click in and the second bar mm-hmm. just would not click in and so there's like probably like 300 people like in line on the roller coaster and they're like um yeah i mean the ride's not going to go with you like this so you you need to get off the ride and i had like the the walk of shame the walk of being too fat to fit too fat to have fun um you know and that just like shows everybody there too that okay as long as i'm not like that person Right. Or like this is a consequence that this person put on themselves that they're too fat to enjoy this ride versus like them thinking, hmm, isn't it weird that a ride doesn't fit everybody who wants to go on it?
1: How does fatness then does that intersect with disability or just I think in the terms of just things not considering everybody? Or being accessible.
0: Mm
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean fat phobia intersects with, you know, white supremacy, uh, all of the things together, but I think at its most important or not important, but it's like very clear to see intersection is with disability studies because yeah, like fatness as being an issue for finding things to fit is similar to folks who have differently able bodies who need to navigate those spaces and a lot of like i think a really good um way to understand this is a lot of times in both crip theory which is disability theory and in fat studies theory um there's a lot of talk about failure like seeing the body as a site of failure and looking at it in that way like that's how capitalism and society looks at it's to say like these bodies are not the most productive bodies and so they must not like get the same access as these most productive bodies are getting. So, you know, access ramps, um, seating that fits folks who either need to move a wheelchair into the spot or like doesn't have armrests so that people can sit in them, booths, all of these things like amusement parks, all of these moments of people cannot actually At these places, because these structures have been made to not include them, is like a very clear moment of disability justice and fat liberation, kind of like holding hands together.
1: And then, I mean, I, I mean, I've followed you on social media for a long time because we're friends, but also now very like as a way of informing myself, but also seeing uh, your your advocacy and activism. And then, one thing that to me is shocking but uh they like instagram is like hashtags or like policing what bodies are appropriate to be displayed can you um talk about that a little bit
2: yeah like the um like people tagging me as a violator and like having instagram take down fat people's stuff like that moment
0: okay wait what yeah yeah, that moment. yeah. um is yeah. this like like shadowing or, or what's like going oh, i'm sorry i mean i know francis just asked but i'm like wait yeah shadow banning.
1: shadow banning um
0: it's like
2: all of the above it's like they shadow i probably get shadow banned like at least once mm. a month um and a lot of other fat people and fat accounts find that same thing to be happening and so a hashtag came up like maybe into like the maybe June of 2019 and it was fat hashtag fat is not a violation because so many fat accounts were getting blocked either blocked shadow banned or their images were being taken down even though the images didn't break the community guidelines but essentially what Instagram always has to say is like oh it must have been a glitch or it must have been a mistake or you know they have like a system I guess that if there's a certain amount of skin showing, then they automatically flag it as like nudity. But then that in itself is like pretty fat phobic because fat people are going to have more skin. We're going to have more like surface.
1: So Mm -hmm. if you
2: have a bot that is like taking off photos where there's more skin showing, that means that like me in a bait, like my size in a photo would be too much skin. And then that gets a violation and gets flagged and gets taken down. So they're, and this is not just like in a, in a fat realm, they do this to almost every marginalized body. Like a lot of trans folks say that their stuff gets, you know, taken down all the time too. And a lot of women of color, more specifically black women get their posts taken down too. And even like places like TikTok released an article admitting that they do not put trans people of color, disabled and fat creators on their for you page. And oh. Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like
2: very open and honest about it, you know? Um, Which is great. I'm glad that they're open and I mean, I guess they honest. were, like,
0: opening, yeah, I guess they were, like, owning up to it. Yeah. Instagram's over there, like, uh, it just, you know, una coincidencia, you know, it was just, like, it just right. happened. I'm sorry. Like, come on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah.
2: And, you know, TikTok admits it, and I'm like, that's cool, but, like, accountability means that you admit something and then you do something about it. Right. Um, And I feel like they, I do see more creators of on the margins on their for you page after that moment happened, but it's clear that these social media sites only want a specific image for their pages. Like, and, and that's, you know, pretty easy to see, like when you're on the explore page or the for you page on TikTok or the -hmm. advertisements that you see on Facebook, it's really clear what message they're trying to sell and who they're trying Mm -hmm. to silence. And very ironic because then it's like I had, I just recently had an account who was trolling me um, and they were using my picture and they had my same name. My username on Instagram is fierce fat fem, and they had the same thing, but they switched one letter and they were going and trolling people. No, I swear. I'm like,
0: what is this? Are you, so someone impersonated you to go like talk shit to other people. (laughs)
2: correct like they were posting uh, like make america great again 2020 on no post. and i was that takes so much i, I know
0: i know and Also, and I, I, for our listeners angelina if i'm correct you are an instagram uh, personality right like you are what are they called like a um, public figure
2: yeah i mean kind of i have like 30 like 3000 people following me so i'm not like some big um big name
1: Influencer? Yeah.
0: Well, but either way, though, it's, yeah, an influencer. But um, you have a certain amount of, uh, what, what's the word? Like, you are an influencer, right? You have this this following. So then to have people, maybe even people that uh, follow you, all of a sudden you coming in or like the fake you, right? Saying mm-hmm. like MAGA 2020, uh, damn. But yeah, so yeah. W- what was happening during that?
1: Yeah.
2: So, I mean, it was horrible because I had so many people coming into my like DMs and stuff and being like, I cannot believe that you would say these things. Like, and it wasn't even like the MAGA stuff. They were also going to a lot of my fat like comments who were like, oh, this is very relatable. And then they were commenting back to them, like lose weight, asshole, like stuff like that. So Oh my God. Yeah. Like they were attacking all these people who were being very vulnerable. Uh-huh. And because it was like one letter was switched in the name Everyone was thinking it was me because it was such a small switch. So, um, you know, a post of mine will get reported in less than five minutes of it being up, but it took me a week to get this account reported. Um, and I had like lots of people reporting them saying like, this is a person impersonating this account. And Instagram was like, oh, you know, due to COVID-19, things are going slower. And I understand that. But I'm like, it's very clear that this person's bullying and you don't take this seriously. You don't take white supremacists seriously. You don't take the KKK post on Instagram seriously, but you will flag any person whose body or existence is different than the mainstream culture that you want to broadcast.
0: Right. Yeah. And so you mentioned COVID. So this is something that happened very recently.
2: Oh, yeah, it was last week. Oh, my God and it's mm-hmm. happened since then so i got them reported they left they created probably like 10 other sub accounts um and continued to do the same thing on my page and then oh earlier this week they came back again as the same username as before with my picture and did the same thing and dm oh me God. saying you'll never get rid of me
0: <gasps> wow. yeah wow that that's ah. intense
2: yeah, I'm pretty sure it's either going to be, like, a 12-year-old white boy whose parents are white supremacists or it's, like, a 55-year-old white cis hetero dude who's
0: just, like,
1: pissed <laughs> <that he doesn't
2: laughs> have my pussy in his mouth. And so...
0: <laughs> that's why they're always upset.
1: Right. So that's what uh, someone who's not an ally looks like. So what, <laughs> what, what does an ally... What can an ally do for... For someone who's experiencing fat, pho- like fatphobic remarks or or whatever, what's the like best way for them to stand up against those comments?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a great question because I think what happens a lot is like performative allyship, you know, where it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I love fat people, and then like they go to their doctor, and their doctor's like, oh, right, so BMI, that's a real thing, and then they don't say anything against it. So, um you know, I think that like specifically thinking about like thin folks, a way to be an ally is to really look out for your fat friends, which means when you go to a restaurant, if you're with a fat person, don't choose a booth. Like don't choose a booth. (laughs) It's really simple. Don't choose a booth. And also it's like as simple as being like, Hey, um, is this seat comfortable? Cause if not like, let's get something that feels good. um, Or even like advocating to a restaurant, like, hey, uh, this meal was great, but accessible seating would make it better. Um, You can also think about ways to advocate to medical people. Like if you have fat friends who are going to medical appointments and you feel comfortable and they feel comfortable and they've given you consent to come with them, you can then be the person who advocates for them by doing your research, like reading Reading books about like fat activism and fat liberation to like really educate yourself on these issues and like pay people who are doing the labor for you. Like buy their books, pay them on Venmo, subscribe to their Patreons, whatever you can do. Like people who are putting labor into these things, both emotional, mental, and physical, need to have ways to be supported because they're giving you education, you know? Um and when it comes to an online atmosphere, I think it is about like commenting back to these people. I think it's also about sharing uh, fat creator's work, supporting them in those kind of ways too, because sharing their work is just as important as liking their posts or, you know, commenting back to a troll. But I think it is about really like educating ourselves on these systems, like reading some books mm-hmm. and at the end, or I can give you like a list of books that I recommend um, for people. Mm -hmm. but yeah I think that's really what it is is like educate yourself and then advocate and don't be a performative ally actually do something about it
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know yeah I love me my performative allies but um (laughs) y'all know y'all know (laughs) I love them Um, Angelina you you, uh, you've mentioned the medical field a couple times um, and it, it just, it reminds me of a lot of times uh, when I go to the doctor and um, like, especially for some reason, like I always remember the, the childhood visits mm-hmm. where specifically, I remember there was a couple of times where I was very, very sick um, and I was taken to the doctor and, um, you know, of course my mom doesn't speak Spanish, you know, she's Latina. Um, and. We go in there. She
1: does speak Spanish. I'm so
0: sorry. Yeah, perdón, perdón. She speaks Spanish. She doesn't speak English. Um, So, you know, we go into the appointment or whatever. Uh, I'm not doing so well. And the doctor, the first thing that he says is that I'm drinking too much milk and that I need to lose weight. Mm. Um, And that was it. So then we go to another doctor. And when we say, oh, that I'm drinking too much milk, the doctor goes, no, you're not drinking enough milk. You need to drink more milk um and it's like and you do need to lose a couple of more pounds Mm. right and then they would throw around obesity um Mm -hmm. and that everything was being caused because of my weight when it was like no bitch I had pneumonia but no one here was able to diagnose that because they were
1: faster yeah
0: it's like because they would see my body and that's all that they would do is the first thing or the pretty much the thing that was just causing all of my issues was my weight right but they wouldn't do any other that happened to me when i had mono mm-hmm. it's frustrating right like i had to go to a yeah. fucking different country to actually get diagnosed i mean i probably could have gone to another doctor but like you know
2: but i mean you're gonna find the same like that's the thing about the medical industry is that they're all getting taught the same things but like in different iterations So
0: Mm.
2: I like, when I was first getting started in my master's program, I was also going through an abortion and I had a doctor straight up tell me as I'm like in the process of like thinking through my decision, she told me, honestly, you should really think about this as a blessing because unless you want to lose 150 pounds, you'll never conceive again. And I remember, like, being so baffled. I walked out right at that moment and just, like, bawled my eyes out on the way home. But, like, in that moment, I was like, what, like, what do I have to do to find a doctor who's going to take care of me? Like, they're Mm -hmm. literally, their code of ethics they have is, like, do no harm. And they're doing so much harm because of, right, because of the rhetoric that they've been taught. Like, it doesn't matter you know, what school they went to, if it's within the US or like even within most westernized countries that haven't been ideal, they're learning that body mass index is an accurate way of diagnosing anybody with anything. When BMI is an outdated system, it's actually a socially created system that doesn't make any sense to use at all and really never has. But people base so much truth in it because we've also been taught that like, Doctors are good people. We've been taught through um, like television shows and through our parents and other folks that doctors are there to help you. And doctors also go through a lot of schooling, and that must mean they are credible. And so we package that all together. Okay, here's this person that's meant to take care of me. They know what they are doing because they've spent a lot of years at school and they're super credible. So when they tell me that obesity is real or that my fatness is the issue, then I should believe them. And that narrative then makes it so that so many people are being mistreated in so many ways. Mm -hmm. We have like the highest rate of eating disorders in this world. And yet we don't turn our, our lens or our focus to the doctors who might be creating them. Like in those moments, I think all three of us had, had mentioned moments of of childhood things. I remember when I had pneumonia, I lost a bunch of weight because all I was eating was salty and freaking crackers and Sprite. And my doctor was like, good job. Keep it up. And I'm like, that's that's hilarious. That's hilarious that you would like me to keep up uh, a disease, uh,
0: an issue, like pneumonia. Yeah, you know, yeah. And you know, like, what's interesting, too, is that I think it took me a while to get a doctor. I think it was in 2015 until, like, a doctor finally flagged that I wasn't eating and was like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, and then started to point out all these different things. was like, wait a minute, is this how you've been kind of living? And then like what you mentioned, right? It's something that is celebrated when you go to different medical people, right? It's like, wow, look at, look at what happened in a week. Look what happened in a month. You lost X amount of pounds, but it's like, but you're not even taking into account of what my actual health is right now. Mm -hmm. Right? Right.
2: Yeah. And for most of the time they're seeing... A number, or maybe not even a number, they're looking at us and they're viewing us as already a problem without looking Mm -hmm. into anything else. And that's like another intersection of disability justice and disability theory, crypt theory, is the idea that when you see a disabled body, you associate all of these failures to it or all of these like emotions onto it without any consent from the person. Like, I've actually seen, you know, people like, Touch somebody's wheelchair, like move them out of the way without like asking or whatever, and yeah, and that's similar to when you know fat people get unsolicited diet advice from some like grandma in a store. You know, like I've had people take things out of my cart before at a grocery (laughs) store and make comments about my body in public setting. So it's like those moments, and those are like big kind of like my like um macro aggressions in a way and uh, you know there's so many like micro things that don't go under the lens of negotiation or like understanding that that's also a part of fat phobia like the small moments of somebody being like um you're not fat you're beautiful like that's reaffirming that like there's a connotation of fatness being not good and so like fat and beautiful do not exist like are not mutually exclusive or inclusive or whatever it might be so, you know, all of those things are super fun.
1: So that that, that means they're so fun.
2: <laughs>
1: that brings me to the idea of beauty, right? So I was thinking of like the how that bias of like the policing would go into like if a thin person posts something and they have like a giant plate of food. There's no criticism on their fatness, right? They're just seen as being skinny, and so like if that post was made by a fat person then all that advice would come in right
2: yeah and I think like those are the beauty standards that we have that are based on European beauty standards um of like also the attachment to whiteness too as a part of it um and I think that's such an interesting moment is when I see people who are like oh yeah all I've had today is like 15 boxes of Cheez-Its and everyone's like oh my god yeah me too that's like such a mood that's like a vibe and then as a fat person <laughs> I like pull out a snack and they're like oh my god like do you know how much like fat is not that or like oh, have you heard of keto it's like uh, get, uh, go <laughs> yourself I'm so tired of hearing about keto. um <laughs> oh my god same like so we because it's COVID-19 we got like a food delivery service for groceries um that's like 20 bucks a month, which has been really nice. And one of their things that they send us is bacon and on it, it's like keto and paleo approved. And it's like, stop, like stop labeling foods as these are okay. Diet foods, like (sighs) morality attached to like body sizes and like you know foods being labeled as good for you versus bad for you like that dichotomy is not helping anybody at all we've got to be able to separate it and say that food is food if things like make you hurt like you know if you're lactose intolerant then maybe milk is not good for you but in terms of like what it's doing like in terms of adding weight to your body like those things we have to break apart the idea that you there's junk food like i hate that notion so much like it's food. That's, that's what it is. It's food. And if it makes you happy, if it makes you feel good, if it nourishes your body, it's good food for you. And that's how we need to be defining those things is not saying that like this is good or bad because of what your body might look like or because of like the nutritional info, but rather on how it makes you feel and what it does for you as a person.
1: And I think that's a really good, healthy approach to food is... Just basing what you should on, like, this makes me feel good. So I'm going to pursue this food.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially I think right now, like, there's so many conversations about, like, food scarcity and, like, what to buy at the grocery store and all those things. And those are all very real. And also accessibility is a part of that, too. And also, like, if I go to the store and I'm buying, like, I don't know, cosmic brownies and... Ho hos and ding dongs and like all those things that have a really good stable shelf life. Like I don't need to hear from anybody about like what that might do to my body because it's sustaining me right now in a time where like there is this like unprecedented amount of trauma. So I think we have to also realize that like people's food choices are their own food choices, and we just like as a general rule, don't comment about people's food and don't comment about people's bodies. Like. I feel like that's a simple rule that I live my life by. I
0: like that. Don't comment on people's food and don't comment on people's bodies. Yeah. Fucking mind your business. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's it.
2: Cause who the hell knows? Yeah. Like p- when people compliment weight loss, like you don't know what you're complimenting. One, you're complimenting this idea that like thin people are inherently better than fat people, but you're also like showing a compliment about like, who knows, like some people lose weight because they have an eating disorder, exactly. and so you're complimenting that behavior mm-hmm. um, or mm-hmm. you're complimenting the trauma that they went through, like just it, it's not necessary. instead, just like shut your mouth.
0: <laughs> 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 I had a question that I totally forgot about. okay, uh no, so yeah, no, never mind. No no,
1: <laughs>
0: no, no. no.
1: why share the question
0: because I forgot the question
2: oh okay okay okay. (laughs) Okay.
0: um no it had something to do with your your artistic performance artwork but I don't I don't know where I was anyway
2: okay I mean yeah some of it's burlesque some of it's me rolling around in cake
0: some of it's me that's what I was going to ask (laughs) um you had mentioned burlesque and getting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you you mentioned burlesque um in one of our conversations, and that you were exploring that avenue a little bit more. Now I was just going to ask um how has that gone, and you know what have you done, and how have you liked it?
2: I loved it. I feel like I you know I live my best Scorpio life of being kind of like the center of the scene and like harness a lot of sexual energy, and I feel like that's really exciting as a fat person to harness mm-hmm. that. And so Mm -hmm. I think with burlesque, it is amazing to be fat, the center of attention, harnessing sexual energy and power, and also taking up space in a very powerful sense. And so Mm -hmm. the performance that I do is like not really traditional burlesque, but it's kind of like a striptease and an eating and offering of food to other people around me kind of burlesque. Um which I like to incorporate food into a lot of my performances, which might seem kind of cliche. um, But I think that it's really powerful for me to kind of have a thing that's kind of had, I've had like a war with food a lot of my life. So having it on stage as like a friend with me or like a colleague, um, Yeah. yeah, it feels really empowering to continue to have that relationship be built. So I think that's why I incorporate it a lot. But yeah, the the burlesque. I mean, it's it's kind of sad because now I can't do it because COVID nineteen. But uh, I was <sighs> dipping my toes into that pond of harnessing that energy, and I also like started doing like go go dancing at clubs, and and I think that is like my wildest. Oh, like, fun! I wish I was in the audience because I wish I saw more fat bodies in like the queer clubs that I would go to, not only just as like patrons of the club, but as the go-go dancers and like I hope that there's like that people in those clubs that are seeing me and are just like oh my god this is like this is everything I've ever wanted.
1: I was um, there and that's what it was for me.
2: I
0: I want to be a go-go dancer with you like I want to be across that like table (laughs) um just (laughs) dancing to some EDM music. Yes. Um but Queer, okay so the queer world with bodies that's a completely mm. other thing right Ooh, mm-hmm. man mm. that is tell them i think we need like another this is like a part
1: two <laughs> yeah um
0: but you know for listeners of this episode just know that you know if you don't know gay culture uh, um you know super white super skinny you know like mm-hmm. not like me or francis or you know But anyway, um, you know, something that you mentioned, Angelina, was uh, food, right? And how you're talking about how uh, you incorporate it now because it used to be something that you struggled with, right? Mm
2: -hmm. But it's
0: very interesting that um, in our cultures, food is such a community thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that is how we commune. That's how we get together and bond and share experiences over food. Yeah. At least speaking for myself and from how I grew up. No,
1: then. same. Yeah.
0: Um, and it's something same. It's something interesting that happens when it goes from this thing that is celebrated that brings us together, to all of a sudden it being something that you feel guilty about. Mm-hmm. At least talking for myself, right? Mm-hmm. Going into this realm of oh, I I can't almost gather with y'all because I feel guilty about eating this. Yeah. Or some, you know. In that mm-hmm.
2: realm, yeah, I think it's. I think it happens a lot when whiteness starts to really creep itself into the household mm-hmm. more and more, like assimilation politics of like assimilating to U.S. culture, um, right. is when it ha- still happens. And like, you know, my family, I grew up with a fat family, um, with fat parents, with a, a parent who decided to get bariatric surgery, gastric bypass when I was very young. And food changed at that moment, but we still always have gatherings around food. And it's like a lot of food, just food, 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 food. And I incorporate Mm -hmm. that even into my classes. Like on the final day, we always have a potluck because I'm like, food is what holds my community together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so having a war with something that like brought so much joy and so much warmth and so much comfort at one time is really hard to hold. And even though I don't like have I feel like I'm in, you know, full recovery from my ED that I had, still food is hard. Like you consume something and then you think about like all the things that society might be thinking about Mm -hmm. it, or like ideologically how we're thinking about it, or all the things that we've heard about the food. And then you get stuck in your head. And it's just like food loses all of the amazing Sensations that it brings. Like, I always think that, like, if we weren't meant to enjoy food, like, why are there so many bomb ass recipes? Like, why are there so many cooking shows? Like, why does food taste so good if we're not supposed to enjoy it? Like, that's why I think that it's a hoax. We are supposed to enjoy food, it's a conspiracy theory. Like, diets are all just a conspiracy theory, it makes no sense. Um, it's so sad that diets don't want you to enjoy the pleasure that food brings because food does bring pleasure. Otherwise, like, you know, we wouldn't be seasoning our foods. And I know some of y'all listening don't season your foods. And like, why? Why aren't you? Seasoning <laughs> yeah. foods? your um, But like, it's supposed to be a pleasurable act, you know, it's supposed to be like, we have so many sayings around like, feed your soul, right? Like, that is a saying that comes from like food being pleasure and food having a really important place in our lives and I'm just like I'm really hoping and I'm really ready to make sure that like the generations beneath me and like my nibblings which is gender neutral for my siblings kids um I really don't want them to grow up in a world where they hate food I really like I just don't want them to hate food. I want them to sit around and enjoy it and have no thought come into their mind about calories or any of the nutritional info, but just like enjoy it and have a good time with
0: it. And I hope that for us too. Yeah. It's all in the decolonization, I guess. Right. And going back to our roots and what we know to be true and also not being assholes to one another.
1: Right. Right. And i think I think something that I mean I'll take from this conversation is the idea that you showing your performances of like a food offering. I think that's something that at least for me, it's very like culturally grounded for that to be very incorporated into whatever art I'm involved in, even if it's like prior to a performance or post performance that offering food is a very communal event. That is needed in performance spaces
2: yeah like permission almost like even though i don't want anybody to have to wait for permission but so many people in my audience i think do hold on to like a restrictive way of seeing food and so it's this moment of like here's permission like eat the cake like eat the damn cake it's here it's ready for you like are you ready to give up the idea that it's not good for you
1: mm.
0: eat the cake mm-hmm. eat the cake eat the
2: cake and whatever type of cake that is you know literal metaphorical <laughs> <laughs>
0: he 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 eat the cake
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: exactly
0: thank you so much for being here with us angelina um, what are your Instagram handles? So in case anyone wants to follow oh, you, how we
1: can
2: book
0: you. And ours. y'all listening should follow. Yeah.
2: Yes. So my Instagram is FierceFem. That's F-I-E-R-C-E-F-A-T-F-E-M-M-E. And I think I spelled that right. Oh, my God. Clock me if I'm wrong. They're um,
0: going to follow your uh, tool. Oh, my God. <laughs> no.
1: No.
0: No. no. <laughs>
2: Um, <laughs> no, the real me has my pronouns in my like name. So you'll see that. Um, and in terms of booking, you can just send me either DM or my email is available on my Instagram page as well. That's where I do most of my things, but you can also see some of my performance work on my YouTube channel, which is also fierce fat Fem. And I think that's like mostly I'm trying to get a website up. I'm trying to maybe do like, um, something over summer where I host like a zoom workshop on, you know, letting go of fat phobia. Um, and so like, if that happens, I'll for sure let y'all know. And I just want to say once again, like, I'm so thankful and grateful that I had to, or I got to have this conversation with all of y'all because I obviously love talking about these things, but also as the people, like all three of us have experienced these things at so many different levels. And I think that brings such like a, a beautiful perspective to it. Like
0: a, a big piece of
2: community care is present in this conversation.
0: Oh, well, yeah. absolutely! Thank yeah, you, thank, thank you so much, Angelina, for being here, um, and for those very deep, profound words. Like, okay, you got Magical. that one. Uh,
1: yes. Thank you for listening to In the Margins podcast. Find us on Instagram at In the Margin Theater. And find our episodes on anchor.fm forward slash In The Margin. And for any other updates, visit our website at www.inthemargintheatre.org.